0: Nine Lives, the debut album from Catalyst, grips with infinite possibility and reflects the contemporary Los Angeles jazz scene. Catalyst is more than a nine-piece band. It's a collective of producers, composers, musicians, and writers who represent a who's who of the Los Angeles jazz community. You can listen to the album on all of the major music platforms or purchase a copy through Bandcamp.com That's Catalyst and the album is Nine Lives. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Mm-hmm. gatekeeper of cellular metabolism known as mTORC 1 underlies a wide range of age related diseases. Navator Pharmaceuticals is developing therapies that can modulate the mTORC 1 complex and allow for a new approach to treating a wide range of diseases including autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease and major depressive disorders. We spoke to Tom Hughes, president and CEO of Navator, about mtork one the company's platform technology, and why it has implications for a wide range of seemingly unrelated conditions. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Navitor, its platform technology, and the wide range of diseases that this has the potential to target. Perhaps we can start with mTORC1 and its role in cellular metabolism. What does it do?
1: So mTORC1 is a fascinating uh, system, and it's something really that uh, people should learn more about. Uh, it impacts every cell of their body and explains a lot of... Uh, how our bodies grow, how disease takes place, and also uh, where very important therapeutics may be coming from in the future. But uh, mTORC1 plays a really interesting function in the cell in that it serves the purpose of of constantly surveying um, the availability of key components that the cell needs in order to carry out its work. And so each cell of our body is constantly surveying the local environment to see are there a sufficient supply of amino acids, particularly the essential amino acids that come in our diet. Um, Is there an availability of glucose or energy or oxygen? Um, Are the local conditions right in terms of of, um, uh, uh, concentrations of things like salts? So all of these things are integrated by mTORC1 um, to let the cell do what it needs to do when the conditions are right. It also uh, takes input from growth factors that are the sort of circulating factors in our body, like insulin, um, that tell the cell how much of that to do. And so, anytime a cell is growing or anytime it's making a product, uh, it needs permission, if you will, from mTORP1 to carry that out. And it's uh, constantly carrying, uh, playing that role. And under conditions where you're a growing child or an embryo, for example, And you need to carry out a lot of synthesis of things like proteins, lipids, nucleic acids in order to drive your your body to grow. Uh, mTORC1 needs to be on uh, in order to support that work. Um, As we get older, uh, we need less of uh, that ongoing production things. And this is where the the control, the daily control, uh, really becomes important and contribute to pathology in the setting of some diseases.
0: There's a a second mTORC complex, mTORC2. What's the relationship between these two complexes?
1: Yeah, so um, so they, they share uh, a couple of things, but the, the main one is that they share uh, an enzyme called TOR, which is also known as the target of rapamycin. Uh, rapamycin is a, a, a small molecule. Actually, it's a rather large small molecule made by um, uh, an organism that was discovered on Easter Island uh, many years ago, and it was found that this particular uh, compound could uh, suppress the proliferation of certain types of cells under certain conditions. And it turns out that uh, the TOR enzyme, uh, or target of rapamycin enzyme, which uh, carries out the process of putting phosphate groups onto other proteins, um, was actually what uh, rapamycin was binding to. And, um, and so TOR as a, as a kinase or an enzyme is shared by the two complexes. It was much later um, that it was discovered that there are two complexes. Actually, there may be more. Um, that incorporate this enzyme. And so um, mTORC1 as a complex is determined when another protein called Raptor binds to to mTOR and forms a complex that uh, carries out the functions that I just mentioned. Um, mTORC2 is is formed when it binds a protein called Richter uh, instead of Raptor uh, in the case of mTORC1, but Richter drives the formation of the complex two and uh, directs the activity of the TOR kinase toward different substrates. Um, mTORC1 carries out all that interesting stuff I mentioned earlier about controlling the availability of uh, or or integrating the availability of of nutrients uh, with the production of of things like lipids and proteins. Um, mTORC2 carries out a much more pedestrian type of a a role, which is to participate in uh, signaling pathways, such as the insulin signaling pathway But it has a very important role in in supporting those pathways for, for example, maintenance of cytoskeletal functions, um, insulin action, uh, cell proliferation. And so if you disrupt mTORC2, you'll have effects on those things. Whereas controlling mTORC1 really gets about this business of of marrying the availability of nutrients and the need for nutrients with uh, uh, production of new materials by the cell. Rapamycin has
0: been used for preventing uh, an immune response to transplant and avoiding transplant rejection. Uh, Everolimus is a a cancer drug that hits these two targets as well. There's been a lot of excitement about rapamycin as a a potential anti-aging therapy. What's the advantage in hitting just the mTORC1 complex as opposed to hitting both of these?
1: Yeah, and this is is where things really get fascinating. And so um, it was initially thought that uh, drugs like rapamycin or everolimus, which is a, a, a close analog or a close cousin, if you will, uh, at the chemical level of uh, rapamycin, uh, but it was first believed that uh, mTORC1 was the, um, the, the, the only thing that was um, really inhibited by rapamycin. Um, but it was later learned that uh, rapamycin also, uh, and everolimus as well, also lead to a depletion of mTORC2 activity. And so these compounds um, carry out some of the benefits that you see in the conditions you mentioned, such as cancers and the immune suppression, um, because of that non-selectivity. In other words, inhibiting the production of materials by those cells and inhibiting their proliferation and cytoskeletal functions really contributes to a very powerful effect to uh, suppress uh, tumor growth and and other activities. Um, On the other hand, there is a very compelling body of literature that's been developed across a wide span of organisms that indicate that if you restrict energy intake, or it's called calorie restriction, um, in um, a wide range of organisms, the whole way from yeast uh, and um, fruit flies up to uh, larger animals such as mice and uh, and primates as well, that this leads to a, a, a Increased uh, lifespan or certainly health span in these organisms, and it's quite well recognized now that a large part of that uh, property is likely related to the um, suppression of mTORC1 activity, which, as we know from what I said earlier, is sensing how much nutrient is available. And so, if you if you feed an animal less nutrients uh, over the course of a, or fewer nutrients over the course of a longer period of time, mTORC1 picks up on that and basically tones down the rate of activities in the body. And this is in some way or another associated with increased lifespan. Um, It's also been shown that uh, there are other inputs in this pathway that also can replicate that effect of uh, lifespan extension. Uh, For example, one of the substrates of mTORC1, which is called S6 kinase. um, uh, If you reduce the activity of that in animals, it also leads to an increased lifespan. And so it's it's clear that it's the mTOR one pathway that's leading to that uh, effect. And so it's very very interesting. And it's it's believed I think pretty generally within the field today that there are going to be different benefits that will be um, uh, evident if one can selectively control mTOR one. Um, but these 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 powerful effects of rapamycin and the other compounds to limit cell uh, proliferation and to suppress the immune system really limit its long-term use in the setting of trying to stamp down or tamp down uh, those age-related uh, diseases that shorten lifespan.
0: Navitor is pursuing a, a wide range of indications by targeting mTORC1, but it, it builds itself as addressing age-related diseases. What's the relationship between aging and diseases in with regard to mTORC1?
1: Yeah, so we've known for a long time that um, as we get older, um, so too do we become sicker. Uh, And if you look at the sort of constellation of diseases that sort of pile up as we get older, um, think about arthritis, diabetes, heart disease, um, neurodegenerative disorders, uh, such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease, uh, general frailty, uh, the fibrosis that occurs, the loss of elasticity of our skin, you know, all of these things um, accumulate as we get older and uh, they often co-occur. In fact, um, if you think about the um, age-related conditions, you know, it, it's actually pretty shocking, but um, the, the, for example, um, the conditions I just mentioned, like heart disease, arthritis, hypertension, um, uh, diabetes, the, um, the, the overall consumption of healthcare dollars in the United States Uh, about 70% of uh, spending goes to the management of about 30% of the people who have more than one of these age-related comorbid conditions. And so, these these sort of stack up and they often occur together. So, for example, if you have diabetes, chances are you also have hypertension. Chances are you also have uh, some decline in cognitive function. Um, Chances are you also have a fatty liver and likely heart disease. These things all come together, not just because of the diabetes, but in large measure because they're occurring together as the body gets older. And one of the key signatures that you can find if you go into the tissues of people who are suffering from these diseases, or if you look at animal models that are um, you know, induced to, to develop these types of conditions is that there's an upregulation of mTORC1 activity uh, quite broadly throughout uh, the different tissues that are impacted. And so it's it's been found I think in quite uh, well validated that many of these conditions, whether it's diabetes, diabetic nephropathy, uh, cardiomyopathies, um, arthritis, uh, 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 all have at center uh, a, um, a worsening of mTORC1 activity or an increase in mTORC1 activity. Um, and there's just maybe just to, to carry that forward one step further, there's a, there's a rather interesting function. And as I mentioned, as we're growing and our cells are dividing, you need mTORC1 you want that to be there providing permission to the cell to make more material so it can grow and divide. But as we get older, our cells stop dividing. And um, yet the pressure for mTORC1 uh, to allow production of materials continues. And this comes in the form of increased levels of insulin in the bloodstream, uh, which promote mTORC1 activity. It comes in the form of blood pressure, which increases something called angiotensin um, 2. Uh, that stimulates mTORC1 activity, Um, other growth factors stimulate mTORC1, and there's no shortage of nutrient, particularly in the Western, uh, uh, with the Western diet that most of us consume, there is a lot of protein, there's a lot of amino acid, there's a lot of glucose, there's a lot of a wide range of nutrients coming in. And so the cell is basically constantly bathed in conditions that say, make more stuff. It's sort of like a production uh, addiction that the body develops. And this this causes the cells to get a little bit out of balance. They can't divide and yet they're making more stuff. So what do they do? Um, In some measure, as we get older, they convert into something called fibroblasts. And this comes through something called the EMT in which the cell takes on a new property, uh, which is to make collagen and to lay down fibrotic material. The other is um, cells that are in that same predicament. They can't divide or they shouldn't divide. And yet they're forced to make more stuff Um, They go into what's called the senescence pathway, and this uh, causes them to change their program, and they begin secreting inflammatory mediators. Um, And um, this leads in the setting of a lot of these diseases, because of mTORC1 in large measure, uh, to become both fibrotic and inflammatory. And so all these diseases I've mentioned are really characteristic of diseases where that fibrosis and the inflammation are both showing up together. So it's a a really important um, targeting concept for age-related diseases.
0: Now, I want to dig into your existing pipeline. But before we do that, just broadly speaking, what's the range of indications that you might be able to address by targeting mTORC1?
1: Yeah, well, it's pretty much everything I just mentioned. So whether you're looking at diabetes, atherosclerosis, heart failure, and cardiomyopathies, um, osteoporosis, uh, uh, chronic kidney diseases, neurodegenerative diseases. All of these have a very clear and compelling link to upregulation of mTORC1. And for many of these, there's already some proof of concept, if you will, using non-selective compounds like rapamycin to, um, to to treat that. The problem is that the tolerability issues with the drugs like rapamycin get in the way. So. People uh, experience reduction of blood cell counts because of the mTORC2 issue. They experience a a deterioration of glucose control. In fact, it can worsen diabetes. And cells in the kidney that are involved in forming that basket filter, basically, like in your coffee maker, that that allows for filtration and production of urine, these cells are very sensitive to loss of mTORC2 activity. And so they lead to issues. So those diseases all, in principle, could be treated with a selective mTORC1 inhibitor. There are also very rare conditions where there is a direct loss of control of mTORC1 that leads to the disease without any question. And uh, these are diseases that uh, provide a really interesting opportunity for a first look at uh, a brand new compound that would be a selective mTORC1 inhibitor. This includes things like um, tuberous sclerosis, where there is a loss of a protein that normally holds back mTORC1 activity, so mTORC1 gets turned on. There are other forms of something called focal cortical dysplasia and epilepsy that are driven by a loss of proteins that sense amino acids and control mTORC1. Loss of those or loss of their function turns mTORC1 on um, uh, basically all the time. And then there's also a condition called autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, which is a mouthful, but it's basically a single gene disease that causes uh, production of cysts in the kidney that become quite dangerous and lead to kidney failure. And uh, this is driven by a mutation that upregulates mTORC1 directly as well. So whether you're thinking about these broader prevalent conditions that are driven, at least in part, by chronic environmental upregulation of mTORC1, like diabetes, Alzheimer, heart disease, or you're thinking about these rare conditions, there is no shortage of ideas in the space of what to go after. What's been missing is selective chemical matter that does not inhibit mTORC2.
0: Let's start with NV5138, which the company entered into a development and option agreement with Supernus Pharmaceuticals. This is an mTORC1 activator in development for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. What's the medical need and how big a problem is this?
1: Well, you know, treatment-resistant depression, basically it is what it says. It's depression that has not responded to other agents um, that otherwise would be used. You know, So typically, people think of the, um, first of all, uh, psychotherapy and other types of behavioral uh, approaches are, are the, the cornerstone of, of management of many diseases, including depression. And they can be quite effective, but not in everyone. Um, then there are drugs that have been around for a while, such as the um, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or the dual reuptake inhibitors called SNRIs. Um, that are used, and, and there are a wide range of different therapies, all of which have been shown to benefit depression. But there's a, a, a rather, you know, substantial um, uh, fraction of people who are just unresponsive to any agent whatsoever, and that's where we define that as treatment-resistant depression. And so these people have, um, you know, substantial issues. They have very poor quality of life because of their sadness and their um, their loss of uh, uh, basically drive. They suffer from poor overall general health. There's also uh, an interesting link between um, severe depression and cognitive dysfunction. And so, uh, it's often the case that poor cognition is present in people who have resistant depression. And it's also the case that people who have cognitive impairment, uh, particularly in a setting of, for example, Alzheimer's disease, that they suffer from depression. And so, this, this sort of um, end of the road, if you will, for people who have failed therapy, they failed um, pharmacotherapy, really need uh, help. And so there's, this is a terrible position to be in. Um, it's associated with premature death. Um, people who have treatment-resistant um, depression have higher rates of suicidal ideation. Um, you know, A large number of them, up to I think 17%, it's been reported, have had prior suicide attempts. And so you can just imagine what a horrible position that is to be in. And to know that the therapies that are available today don't don't help you. Um, these folks also consume a lot of excess uh, medical care. They have uh, up to three times more uh, general medical visits per year than people without uh, uh, treatment-resistant tr- depression. And they, they, they add a substantial burden to our overall societal costs, including uh, time off from work, uh, increased medical costs uh, across the board. It's a very, very challenging problem and one that is is really deserving of better, better approaches. And
0: how does 5138 differ in its mechanism of action from more traditional antidepressants?
1: Yeah, so this is really a fascinating situation. And so um, we've known for some time that people who are uh, depressed, and certainly animal models in which you can induce a depression-like uh, type of a situation, that there is a, a reduction in the production and turnover of proteins in the, in the brain um, that form uh, both the connections that are made between neurons in the brain, as well as the proteins that are involved in making those synaptic vesicles that are basically the communication vehicles or little packages of neurotransmitters that are produced and then um, responded to between neurons in the brain. And so this, this reduction of protein capacity has been known for some time It's also been known for some time that the energetic competency, which is a big word for saying not enough uh, basically gas in the tank uh, to sort of keep the brain working, has been at issue. And just, you know, two quick fun facts about the brain. Um, In most of us, our brain consumes about 20 to 25% of our total daily energy economy. And so the brain has an outsized appetite, if you will, for glucose and for uh, burning energy. And that's just to keep the pumps going and to keep the uh, the neurotransmitters working and to support this, what's called anabolic activity of making proteins and synapses and forming those connections. At the same time, um, there's a, 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 a tremendous amount of protein production in the brain. So the brain is a protein factory of sorts. Um, and your, your brain makes about 15% of your total body protein synthesis. So it, it's making, you know, the equivalent of about a chicken breast worth of protein every day and since the brain isn't growing that by that much every day, it means there's a lot of turnover. Turnover also costs energy. And um, that plasticity, that turnover, that active management of the protein is really central to the function of the brain. And so knowing that mTORC1 is the core regulator of protein synthesis, you know, prompted people to look to understand whether it was important in, in managing that process. And it, it surely is. And um, so there's been work uh, in particular done at Yale University over the course of the last many years that have both tied low mTORC1 activity to um, depression and depression-like states, and also that drugs, particularly emerging drugs like ketamine or even the psychedelic drugs like uh, psilocybin, where they improve mood and and reduce depression require mTORC1 activation in order to work. And so this was the backdrop against which the company was operating a few years ago, when it discovered a really interesting molecule That binds to a protein called sestrin and turns on mTORC1, and it it does so by uh, pretending, if you will, or mimicking the amino acid leucine, which is um, uh, an important regulator of mTORC1. But leucine itself doesn't work in the brain, so we have the opportunity with our compound to get into the brain and turn on mTORC1 in a way that isn't possible with normal nutritional control. And so, um, so that uh, led us into that space and. We're really pleased to see that stimulating mTORC1 activity restores this protein production very quickly and very profoundly, and that opened up the pathway to develop it for depression.
0: The deal with Supernus provided an avatar with a $50 million upfront payment. How are the two companies working together?
1: Yeah, so just a quick correction there. The upfront was $25 million, but Supernus is providing us with $50 million in R&D support. To carry the program through uh, phase two testing in depression. And so, um, you know, we we teamed up with uh, Supernus uh, earlier this year. Uh, It's been a fantastic relationship. Uh, We're working closely with them to plan the the program and to design it. Uh, And with their financial support, we're running the program. Uh, We are uh, leveraging wherever we can uh, the capabilities, the know how, and the talent that they have in their organization. And uh, so it's a true collaboration between our two groups, and um, we're very, very excited to be working with them.
0: What's the development path forward?
1: Um, well, so the first steps are to really complete what's called the, the phase one uh, clinical work with the program. And so we had done a, a series of small, short studies early on in development to ask questions about how much of the drug got into the brain, was that tolerated? Um, did it turn on the pathway of mTORC1 in the brain, which it did very nicely, and to um, uh, establish a number of other markers of effect, either in depressed patients or in, in people who are otherwise normal or otherwise healthy, uh, uh, normal individuals looking, for example, stimulation of electrical activity in the brain. So we're able to confirm all of that. The next step is to prepare the, the program for chronic dosing. So we're currently running a study with supernus. Uh, and their support to um, look at repeat dosing and to help find out what is the right dose to use for the drug. Um, That's going very well. We're also working on manufacturing the drug, uh, conducting more of the non-clinical safety program and the other things that you need uh, to work with FDA to move the program forward. And we're actively designing our phase two program with them currently.
0: And what's the endpoint you're expecting to use?
1: Uh, You know, that's really to be disclosed. I think once we've locked down the plan, and I think uh, particularly given that this program is potentially of material importance to Sopranas, they need to sort of drive the communication around this. But what it can say is that it'll be a a study in patients who are depressed. It'll use um, uh, recognizable endpoints that are familiar to people in the area and should provide a very robust test of the drug and we think enable it for further development.
0: A uh, second candidate you're developing is NV20494. This is in development for the rare genetic kidney disease, ADPKD. What is ADPKD, and, and how does it manifest itself and progress?
1: Yeah, so yeah, the 494 program, uh, which we call it, that's the nickname for NV20494. Um, very, very interesting compound, and maybe just a, a quick uh, mention about the compound itself. Um, uh, but we'll come back to that a bit. But just to say that this is a very selective, completely selective inhibitor of mTORP1. Uh, and so it also ha- happens to get to the kidney very, very effectively after oral dosing. And so this led us to the kidney as a potential uh, really good first uh, organ system to look at with our platform of programs that, that selectively inhibit uh, mTORP1. So ADPKD um, sort of came into view Because of a couple things. Um, What is it? First of all, it's a disease that is caused by uh, loss of function of one of our two alleles. So it's an autosomal dominant disease, meaning that you only have to have one of your two genes. Um, You have two copies of every gene in your cell. One of them being defective leads to this disease happening. Um, And um, ADPKD uh, results in the loss of function of one of two proteins. One is called polycystin 1. The other is polycystin-2, and they, they serve this really interesting purpose uh, in the cell uh, in the kidney where the, the, the urine is being formed and, and concentrated, um, and uh, these uh, proteins basically serve as a mechanoreceptor for uh, basically tension of flow and, um, and uh, basically the, um, the function of that uh, unit of uh, the tubular component of the nephron. Uh, But what happens when this uh, protein is lost is that um, it leads to loss of that sensing. Um, This turns on, um, among other things, turns on mTORC1, and there's a direct physical relationship between PC1 and a component of mTORC1. And what you find is that when the the, the polycystin 1 protein is less effective or less functional, mTORC1 gets turned on, and this leads to uh, both an asymmetric division of the cells in the kidney Formation of cysts. It promotes the growth and um, expansion of those cysts. And it also, in the longer haul, we believe drives the fibrosis and inflammation that really characterizes these kidneys. And so, what happens in these people is that they develop these cysts. So, everybody knows what a cyst is, but it's basically a a sphere of cells that sort of bulge out and form from the the normal tubular epithelial component of our kidneys. They, They fill up with fluid. And they can become quite large. And so, um, your normal um, your kidney looks like something around the size of a small hamburger, um, or let's say the size of a, a medium-sized pear. Uh, but people with um, with uh, a ADPKD can develop kidneys that are extremely large. You know, even up to two to three liters. So the size of a large soda bottle, you know, times two in your abdomen can be, first of all, very uncomfortable, but it can cause a lot of pain, uh, kidney pain kidney stones the cysts can get uh, infected and eventually these people um, if if left untreated uh, many of them will progress to failure of their kidneys and they need to go on to dialysis or to um, uh, to kidney replacement which means basically a transplanted kidney and so it's it's a rather concerning condition um, these people have uh, impaired quality of life they also sometimes can have cysts in their in their liver uh, that replicates that same problem there and so, it's a rather you know, steadily progressing disease that, that really limits people of both lifespan and uh, of life quality. And so um, it's been shown already that if one can inhibit mTORC1, you can slow the growth of those cysts or even reduce the size of that. And this provides, we think, a really interesting opportunity to have a new therapy that would be very, very different from what's available today.
0: And what's the development path forward there?
1: The path forward is uh, we hope to be uh, initiating clinical uh, work with the compound sometime mid-year. Next year, Uh, we're currently doing the typical types of studies that one does to get ready for that, learning how to manufacture the drug and scale it up so that we can study it, Uh, uh, working to establish the safety and tolerability and exposure of the drug after administration in animals, uh, demonstrating its selectivity relative to other processes, And um, so that's the work that's going on. Um, Once we're in the clinic, um, we will uh, begin to um, essentially first establish the exposure, safety, and tolerability of the drug in people who are otherwise healthy. Uh, We will take a quick look in patients with ADPKD to ask a very interesting question. That is, can we demonstrate that the drug is getting into the kidney and impacting the pathway of of effect? so coming back to this relationship between polycystin-1 and mTORC1, it's known that um, a loss of polycystin-1 turns on mTORC1, but it's also been shown that if you inhibit mTORC1 in that setting, you can increase the and restore the level of polycystin-1 protein. And so we'll be looking for evidence of that in um, samples taken from the urine of these patients, as well as other endpoints that we'll be looking for. So uh, we're hoping within you know, a relatively short period of time that we'll be able to say that the drug is in and doing its job, and we'll set ourselves up for the studies that really matter, which is to demonstrate impact on cyst function, cyst growth, and uh, quality of life in these patients, ultimately.
0: You're developing one drug that inhibits NTORC1, a second one that activates it. Is there a concern that activating or inhibiting it can lead to unwanted side effects?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really insightful question, Danny. And I think, you know, it's one that we get a lot actually. Um, but it, it, what, what's really interesting about the system is that um, what happens when you activate mTORC1 is not the opposite of what happens when you inhibit it. In fact, there's very little overlap between, for example, genes uh, or um, uh, proteins that are produced in response to those two processes don't really overlap very much. And so it's it's a remarkable situation, but we we just don't see um, uh, much uh, cause for concern. For example, about uh, the inhibition uh, overriding uh, things like control of neuronal function or causing depression. One thing I'll say about four nine four is it doesn't get into the brain, so we don't have any concern there at all about uh, causing the neurons to uh, change their function. Um, you know, but this is one of these uh, really interesting. Um, sort of stories in in drug development is that, and discovery is that sometimes the science takes you to something you would not have expected. And our early studies uh, working on that protein cestrin, which led to the depression drug, was originally looking for an inhibitor of that system. We happened to find activators, um, and those activators took us to the brain. And this happened to uh, occur at the same time that that group at Yale University was identifying the important role for one in the action of antidepressants. So, so sometimes you you go where the the molecules take you. In other cases, you deliberately developed uh, drugs um, uh, uh, with with that with a specific mindset. In in the case of four nine four, the drug is taken us to the kidney, and it's a really good marriage between um, the profile of four nine four and the condition of, of ADPKD.
0: Tom Hughes, President and CEO of Navator Pharmaceuticals. Tom, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Danny, thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.